the explosion. It is 3.38 a.m., October 1st, 2014. The moon's light is choked by a massive sandstorm that has engulfed the Golan Heights. Against all public health recommendations, Stephen Gold is outside. He is sitting on a lawn chair behind his trailer. He is drinking a beer. His world is in shambles. Eighteen months earlier, Stephen had been living in a well-appointed colonial home in a leafy suburb of Washington, D.C., He'd had a respected and secure position. He'd had influence and he'd had the ability to help so many in need. He'd had everything he'd worked for. And then he'd invested everything that he had in a belief. A belief that he could reinvent a society he'd never been a part of. Now, as he sits in the polluted darkness of that night, reality is destroying him. All of his efforts have been for nothing. When he sees the flash of the explosion piercing the sandy air, he is not surprised. Nothing surprises him anymore. By the time the shockwave hits him, he has already accepted the reality of the explosion. But then, he is surprised. Because, instead of taking another drink of his beer, he finds himself standing up from his chair and dusting off his sand-covered clothing. It is time to get back to work. In a way, his life has been saved by the bomb that almost killed him. Muhammad al-Hassan is awake. As he lies down on his cot, Muhammad sees the faces of those who have died for his people. He sees the faces of those who have been sacrificed by his actions. But, for the first time in years, their spirits are not torturing him. He knows, finally, that he will give their lives meaning. Their sacrifices will help overcome crushing and devious forces. For that brief moment, he is content. But when the sound of the explosion ruptures the night air, Mohammed is both shocked and surprised. He fears, already, that this bomb will undermine the gifts of those who have already given everything. I, Mariam Al-Masuli, step into the communal bathroom. A harsh fluorescent light burns into me, replacing the darkness I've emerged from. Outside, the wind and the sand have been brutal, but I've overcome both. I've prepared everything as well as I could manage. Now my success lies in the hands of Allah. I place my hands on the sink and stare at the filthy aluminium surface that serves as a mirror in this dismal place. And I wait. I wait for the explosion. Any second now, I tell myself, trying to will a different reality. I grip the counter tightly, but nothing's happening. I step outside, back into the darkness, and the sandstorm so that I can pray, but there is no answer from Allah. Reluctantly, I begin to walk back to my tent. I begin to walk back to my crippled brother. Perhaps it is time for us to run again. Perhaps we can find a new place to hide. Perhaps we can find some other way to evade the terror that surrounds us. I glance towards the target, almost regretfully. I can't actually see it through the sand. But then, a moment later, there is a massive burst of light that pierces even the dirty fog that surrounds me. Moments later, the sound wave hits me with a thud. I step back in shock and surprise. And in joy. My prayers have been answered. God is great. Hope endures. Chapter 1. Mariam. The Beginning. 
October 28, 2008, Mosul, Iraq. I hated being woken up in the morning. That's probably why my father seemed to take particular pleasure in doing exactly that. He was an unusual man. While others mourned their predicament and cultivated their anger, he seemed to feed off his own endless wellspring of joy. He was always smiling, and it wasn't an act. He was tremendously happy, even though he had no sons. Somehow, he always found, or made, the happier path. Others might insist it didn't exist, but he always proved them wrong. Others would see a desert mirage, but he would see water. And because he was the one looking, the water would materialise. Of course, my father didn't wake me for school. Only a few schools were open. They were madrasas, and built like fortresses. Even children weren't off-limits when it came to violence. But those few schools that were open were only for boys. There was nothing for girls. There used to be, my father told me, but the dangers had become far too great. So, my father taught me. In the afternoons, we'd read and talk. He could discuss everything, and he spent an enormous amount of time filling my head and then testing me on topics as random as physics, the Quran, and biology. But that was only in the afternoons. The core of my education started in the mornings. It started when he woke me, despite my protests. As soon as I had a single eye open, he would hurry me along as I slipped into a dress. He'd tie me as I did a few push-ups and sit-ups and some jumping jacks. He called that spurt of early morning exercise coffee for kids, but I called it torture. And then he'd rush me out of the house and into his Land Rover. There would be some breakfast there waiting. Most often it was hummus and some pita. And then we'd drive somewhere in the city, going to do something. He never told me what we were going to do, or even why, and I knew not to ask. Figuring out the answers was part of my education. I did ask him once why he wouldn't just tell me what we were up to, but he just smiled like he always did and said, what do you think? The answer annoyed me. I'd wanted a real answer, not another mystery. Nonetheless, I noodled over his reply for months, and then finally it came to me. I went to him and announced, without any sort of introduction, because if I figured it out for myself, I'll never forget the answers. Somehow, he knew what I was talking about. It was like we were just continuing the earlier conversation, and there had been no months-long break. He was like that. But even then, he didn't respond. He just smiled. It was as close to a confirmation as he ever gave me. I never forgot that answer, or any of the others. He was right. Figuring it out for myself was the surest form of education. That particular morning, my father seemed even more chipper than usual. He was barely suppressing an extra-wide grin as I moaned myself into consciousness. I really didn't want to get up. I felt even more tired than usual, but I knew I had no choice. I lifted my head and noticed that it was still dark outside. This early, Ab? I asked plaintively. I was more tired than usual. He just grinned even wider. I didn't like going out in the dark. Everybody knew it was dangerous. Trucks driving at night were more likely to be deemed suspicious by any one of the four major forces operating in the city. But my father didn't seem to notice these things. He'd always insisted that nobody would kill him. But, as with most things, he never explained how he knew this. It was my job to figure it out. I didn't like this kind of puzzle. I knew he was right, of course. Nobody ever tried to harm us. 
But when I saw the darkness outside, all I could think of was the horror stories of people who left their homes at night and were blown to smithereens by drones, kidnapped by Al-Qaeda, torn apart at checkpoints by machine gun-wielding federal soldiers, or summarily executed by the Kurdish secret police. I suppose most nine-year-olds might have been ignorant of what was going on, but most nine-year-olds didn't have my father. My father, despite everything that was going on and everything he told me, was still smiling. He was smiling like he expected me to learn his joy, despite knowing why I should not be happy. Reluctantly, I climbed out of bed and got dressed and did my exercises. And then, as always, he rushed me out to the truck. I barely caught a look at my pregnant and worried mother before we escaped out the front gate of our house. We lived in the Alpha Kaffa district of the city, on the left coast of the Tigris. I'd seen every nook and cranny of the city, and I can assure you that ours was the nicest. The homes were large and surrounded by high walls. The ancient ruins of Ninveh were only blocks away, and our neighbours were all important people. I got the sense my father was also important, but he was different than them. Whether they were politicians, imams, priests or criminals, they all seemed to keep themselves away from the physical dirt of the city. Whether they wore suits or robes, their garments were always spotless. But they seemed to wash themselves in another kind of filth. My father wasn't like that. He was Mossel's municipal handyman. So, most days when we went out, we'd find ourselves wading through sewage, wrestling with pipes or securing down power lines, and he was a good man. The neighbours were different in another, critical way. They all had their own people. They were leaders of particular slices of our society. But my father had everybody. Arriving at an overflowing berm, my father could assemble a work crew in minutes. Sunnis, Shiites, Assyrian or Yazidi, people who had become incompatible through the long years of ethnic conflict and war, all of them would come out, together, when my father asked. He used to joke that that's how our family earned its name, Al-Mosuli. The city was pulling itself apart, but we still belonged to it and it to us. We were Mosuli, first and foremost. As we drove, the streets were dark. Power was intermittent despite the massive electrical dam that continually threatened our lives. The dam was, predictably, poorly maintained. The street was roughly paved and so our headlights bounced along the walls that bordered the street. I saw here and there the one-eyed smiley face of the letter Nun. It marked the houses as Christian, Nazarene. We weren't Christian, but it scared me nonetheless. Everybody, even other nine-year-olds, knew that Al-Qaeda had recently told the Christians of the city to convert or die. Thousands of homes had been marked. Over a dozen Christians had already been killed. By that dark morning, the dust that regularly blew through the city had collected around the houses' gates. Every one of them had been abandoned. At that moment, even my father wasn't smiling. We drove past the university and headed north, across the Kosa River, and then out of the city. We passed checkpoint after checkpoint, with only a wave. Soldiers saw my father's truck and they let us pass. We probably passed roadside bombs with unseen people effectively waving us by as soon as they knew it was our truck. North of the city, we passed a small village. I'd forgotten what it was named, but it seemed to be overflowing with people. Extra cars were parked akimbo in all the small spaces between the homes, and tents were pitched everywhere outside. The village was bordered north and south by checkpoints. The checkpoints weren't manned by federal troops, but by scared-looking villagers. They were Christians, but when they saw us, they waved us through. My father still wasn't smiling. We kept driving north. The road narrowed to three lanes. We passed streams and farmland and more overflowing villages. 
The road narrowed to two lanes, divided from one another by a sandy strip. There was no traffic. We passed between low mountains and into an area covered with lush farmland. It had grown brighter and I noticed for the first time that the sky was covered with clouds. I felt like I hadn't seen clouds in months. They almost looked false, like they'd been painted above me as a joke from on high. I looked up, watching them shift in the sky as our highway widened to four lanes and we arrived at a major intersection. We turned right towards Mahad. I'd never heard of the place. About seven kilometres later, we reached the turn-off for Mahad itself. But instead of turning towards the town, my father turned in the other direction and up a tiny dirt road. Before long, we'd stopped, next to a massive arrangement of carefully cut and perfectly placed stone blocks. It was a ruin, but a sizable one. My father stopped the truck, and without a word, he got out. He was smiling again. The grin he was trying to suppress at our house had finally broken out completely. He was almost laughing with joy. We seemed to be in the middle of nowhere, but I knew where we were. It was the Jerwan Aqueduct. It had been built thousands of years before in the days of Sancherib. It was the oldest surviving aqueduct in the world. It was a massive, 75-foot-wide water bridge. It was only a small part of the 90-kilometer water delivery system that Sancherib had constructed. It had all been capped with a series of retaining ponds intended to modulate the rapid flows from the spring melts. The whole thing had been built for only one reason, to sustain the ancient city of Ninveh. It was built to sustain what we now called Mosul. Just then, it began to rain. As the water ran over and between the stones, and the musty smell of reinvigorated life filled the air, my father looked at me. And then he said, in a voice somehow both solemn and delirious with joy, Mariam al-Masoli, this is who we are. A moment later, I answered the question he'd implied. We exist to sustain the city of Mosul. Somehow he managed to smile even more. And then I saw it, the unbroken chain of my family extending back through time. We were the ones who sustained the city, working on its water and its sewage, on its power and its streets. We were the ones who had spent countless generations intertwined with it. Whoever came to rule Mosul recognised that we were the key to their success. It was why we were always safe. My father had no party or sect. He threatened no one. He belonged to the city, and in a way, the city belonged to him. As we stood in the rain and watched the flow of water over the broken stones of the aqueduct, I smiled. I smiled like my father did. I knew who I was, and I knew why. That day remains the fondest memory of my life. June 4th, 2014, six years later. At 1.29am, a car bomb had targeted our house. It was the very first attack the Islamic State had launched on Mosul. For the first time, my family had been a target. My parents were killed instantly, and my five-year-old younger brother was struck in the head by shrapnel. He was alive but unconscious. I remember grabbing a bolt of fabric to carry him with and slinging him over my shoulder and then running. I was panicked and scared. We left the city, heading north with other refugees. He became extremely heavy. As we travelled further and further from Mosul, I realised just how lost we were. We existed to sustain the city, but we were no longer a part of it. I could imagine my father had set the whole thing up. I could imagine the questions he wanted me to answer. The first was, who am I now? The second was, why had they tried to kill my family? And the third was, how can you find joy? 
As we run, I try to hold the memory of my father's face, but gradually, all that remains is his smile. This is Joseph Cox, author of The City on the Heights. The City on the Heights podcast is free, but you can still help the project. First, you can buy the book on cityontheheights.com. It is only $3.99 for the Kindle edition and $16.99 for a beautiful physical copy. This is a great way to get ahead in the plot in case you want to know what happens next before the podcast gets there. Second, and more importantly, you can share this podcast with others. Thank you for listening to The City on the Heights.